I'd like to welcome everybody to the second president's lecture of the year. Uh, this lecture is a very special uh, president's lecture uh, because of its speaker, Alan Kruger. Uh, the reason that is so special, aside from the fact of his great distinction, is that he is uh, he really had the idea behind this lecture series. It was not long after I became president that Alan and I were having lunch, and he suggested that it was a great shame that uh, Princeton has so many wonderful lectures all the time uh, in the university, and yet so rarely do we actually get to hear each other, uh, that colleagues uh, are able to hear colleagues. And it was really out of that discussion uh, that this lecture series was born. And as I look around the audience and see some of the prior speakers in this series, uh, what I am um, remembering is what a wonderfully good idea of Alan's uh, this series uh, uh, really is. Um, uh, today, I have asked uh, Professor uh, Cece Rouse to introduce her friend and her colleague, uh, Alan Kruger. Uh, let me just say a few words about Cece. Uh, Cece has been at Princeton since 1992. She is now a professor of economics and in the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, she directs the Education Research Center in the Department of Economics in the Woodrow Wilson School. She is also a participant in the program in African American Studies in the uh, Center for the Study of Child Well-Being and is a senior editor of a journal that uh, now uh, lives here at Princeton University called The Future of Children. She is a distinguished labor economist who focuses on the field of education. Cece. Misunderstanding Terrorism, Economics, and the Roots of Terrorism. I'm sure that many of you are wondering why this is a topic an economist would be taking on. Before I answer your question directly, I'd like to take the bull by the horns and face squarely the stereotype that many of you probably have of economists. I'd like to begin with a story. A party of economists is climbing in the Alps. After several hours, they become lost. One of them studies the map. He turns it upside down, he finds the landmarks, pulls out his compass, he looks at the sun, and he finally declares, okay, see that big mountain over there? His colleagues eagerly say yes. The economist answers, well, according to the map, we're standing right on top of it. <laughs> well, so some economists may not understand the world nor data very well, but fortunately, Alan Kruger is not among them. In fact, I'm pretty sure he knows how to read a map. More seriously, Alan has many gifts as a scholar. <laughs> and these gifts make him an unusual kind of economist. One of his greatest assets is his unbounded curiosity, which has led him to answer and, answer and ask many interesting questions. Importantly, he also has the ability to figure out which of those questions the rest of us would like to know the answer to as well. Many of you probably know his writings in his monthly column in the New York Times. And if you're like me, you're in awe of his ability to delve into such diverse topics as job training and ticket scalping at professional football games.
What you may not know is that his academic work is equally stunning. While much of his work has been in labor economics, he's left his mark on fields such as environmental economics, health economics, macroeconomics, behavioral economics, and yes, rockonomics, the economics of rock and roll. And at the same time, his contributions are not just skin deep. This is to say that he has superb analytical and research skills. His work in areas such as the economics of education and the minimum wage could fill entire syllabi and our standards in every labor economics class. In fact, it's fair to say that Alan's trademark is to ask an interesting question, think of an unbelievably clever way to answer it. And his answers were often surprising. They may turn a literature on its head, and they often leave the reputation of others who had also attempted to address questions in this area in tatters. These are the qualities that led Alan to his topic for today. Terrorism has plagued countries around the world for centuries. And while Americans used to worry about terrorism in a detached sort of way, it was the events of September 11, 2001 that brought it up close and personal. Clearly, to craft effective anti-terrorist policy, one must have an understanding of the causes of terrorism. And terrorist activities are made up of the individual decisions of people. But since its roots, since the core of economics is about individual decision making, it's not such a stretch for an economist to be interested in the factors that underline an individual's decision to become a terrorist. Many people, private citizens and policymakers alike, had their pet theories as to the causes of terrorism. And many were content to translate their pet theories into policy without having a shred of evidence to support their view. But Allen's standards are higher. He believes that policy should be based on sound, and I emphasize sound, evidence. And when members of Washington's elite began to develop policy around uh, policy on anti-terrorism around the premise that poverty begets terrorism, Allen decided to examine the premise for himself. The events that have subsequently followed could fill in an academic equivalent of a Tom Clancy novel. But when a pointy-headed academic is able to get the US Secretary of State to eat his words, all I can say is, I'm glad he's on our team. Not surprisingly, Alan has many professional accomplishments. But they are so numerous, I might not finish before 6 PM, and I think you'd probably like to hear from him as well. Briefly, he's been at Princeton for many years. He has served on the editorial boards of many of the profession's top journals and received numerous awards and honors. He founded the Princeton University Survey Research Center, which has grown to become an invaluable asset for students, faculty, and administrators alike. And in the mid-1990s, he served as the chief economist in the US Department of Labor, thereby putting into practice what many of us attempt to do. And so it is with great pleasure, admiration, and honor that I introduce to you the Bentime Professor of Economics and Public Affairs, Alan Kruger. Thanks very much. I will definitely need this because I have a cold. <clears throat> hmm. Well, maybe I can read a map, but I can't turn on the microphone. Uh, I, I could use this, but I think it'll be fine. It's on? The green light is not on. I'll have to be careful what I say now that I know it's on. Um, I just want to say for the record that when I suggested this lecture series to Shirley, 
I didn't pr propose myself as a speaker, uh, but I'm very uh, honored to have uh, the opportunity to talk about my research in this area. Um, and uh, I've been working for the last uh, three, three and a half years on the question of why some people participate in terrorism. And CC raised the question, why wouldn't economists work on that topic? And I have uh, two answers for you. Uh, one, I think of this as standard labor economics. It's a question of occupational choice. <laughs> some people choose to become terrorists and others uh, engineers or doctors. Uh, so uh, one might think or hope that economics uh, could provide some insight. Uh, secondly, and, and, and uh, uh, I wouldn't say more seriously, but more importantly, I had done work previously on the economics of hate crime. And I'll tell you a little bit about that work because I think it's related. Uh, there's a large literature now on hate crime by economists, sociologists, and political scientists. Um, and uh, that literature, uh, although uh, often there are claims made about economic conditions leading uh, people to take out their aggression against minority groups and so forth, uh, suggests very little connection between economic conditions and participation in hate crimes. So my suspicion going into this literature uh, was that uh, terrorism would look uh, similar. So I was going to give this lecture the title, Enlisting Social Science in the War on Terrorism, but I thought that sounded a little bit too militaristic. Uh, so I gave it the title, Misunderestimating Terrorism, which means I can talk about anything I want. Uh, and I want to start uh, and, and focus in the lecture on dispelling what I think is a common misperception, uh, that uh, terrorism has its roots in poverty and in a lack of education. And just to show you that I'm not picking on a straw man, I have several quotes I'll read to you. Uh, first by George Bush, March uh, 2002. Uh, he uh, said in a speech in Monterey, Mexico, where he announced the Millennium Challenge Grants, we fight against poverty because hope is an answer to terror. Now, President Bush, and I'll come back to this, uh, has a more nuanced view now. Um, uh, Laura Bush, a little bit later, said, a lasting victory in the war against terror depends on educating the world's children, because educated children are much more likely to embrace the values that defeat, defeat terror. Uh, James Wolfenson, who's the president of the World Bank, on several occasions made a connection between poverty and terrorism. Uh, the war on terrorism will not be won until we have come to grips with the problem of poverty and thus sources of discontent. Uh, now, a cynic might say it's in the interest of the World Bank to try to claim there's such a connection. Uh, Tony Blair, uh, the dragon's teeth of terrorism are planted in the fertile soil of poverty and desperation. Uh, the Dalai Lama waited. <laughs> Years of negligence and indifference to poverty and oppression may be among the causes for this upsurge in terrorism. Uh, and several academics, I have a quote here from uh, uh, my friend Laura Tyson uh, from Business Week, uh, drawing a connection between uh, e economic deprivation uh, and terrorism. Uh, but one can find uh, many other uh, quotes. And what's quite striking to me is how such strong claims are made on the basis of basically no evidence. Um, so uh, uh, that led me to uh, search for some relevant evidence. And it turns out there is a, a relevant literature, which I'll also site and I'll discuss my own work. Um, the main papers that I've written that I'll draw on are listed here, and if you want to download them, they're available on the web at the Industrial Relations section's webpage. That's www.irs.princeton.edu. I say that because IRS might lead you to shy away from that website. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and I'm going to be talking about work that I've done together with uh, co-authors, uh, mainly uh, Yikim Lachkova, who is a historian and an expert on the Middle East, and David Layton, who is a political scientist at Stanford. Um, so, uh, so that you don't miss my bottom line, I put it right here. This is a quote from one of those papers. Uh, Any effect of education and poverty on terrorism is indirect, complicated, and probably quite weak. I guess I inserted the quote here. Um, and it's actually a bit out of character for me to be downplaying the role of education in uh, life outcomes. I have a, a book here, which I'll, I'll advertise, called Education Matters, which is a collection of essays I've written on the relationship between education and uh, income and other uh, important outcomes, um, uh, which finds a very important role for education. Uh, when it comes to terrorism, however, I think education uh, is not a very important factor. Or if it is, it has the reverse effect than uh, many people think. So uh, the outline for my talk is I'll begin by defining terrorism. Then I'll talk about uh, literature on hate crimes briefly. I'll talk about some evidence from opinion surveys. Then uh, uh, data on uh, individual participants in terrorism, uh, looking at Pal Palestinian terrorists, um, members of Hezbollah's militant wing, uh, the Israeli underground. Uh, and then uh, I'll talk about uh, country-level patterns in terrorism, which enables me to go into a fun digression. Uh, defining terrorism turns out to be quite difficult. If you look in the scholarly literature, there are more than 100 different definitions. Um, and uh, they don't all uh, accord with each other. There's an interesting story about the um, uh, Organization of Islamic States, which met in 2002, uh, foreign ministers from 50 different Islamic countries. They unanimously agreed to condemn terrorism, but they couldn't agree on a definition. Uh, so the outcome of the meeting was they condemned something, but they didn't agree on what it was they were condemning. Uh, and the definition of terrorism turns out to be quite ticklish. As an economist, we usually don't think too hard about how things are defined. It doesn't change our analysis that much. Um, but my regressions aren't going to be any different if I use a different definition. Um, maybe you would interpret them a little bit differently. Anyhow, uh, I thought I should be upfront and tell you what I have in mind uh, by terrorism is politically motivated violence by sub-state actors. It could be individuals or groups. Um, and uh, this violence has the intention of reaching a wider audience, not just limited to the individual victims of the violence. Um, and that definition of terrorism, I think, runs through many of those uh, 100 scholarly definitions I mentioned earlier. So let me begin by talking about the literature on hate crimes. And uh, I'm going to do this for a couple of reasons. One, I think of hate crimes as closely related to terrorism. Uh, I once wrote, I think in the New York Times, that hate crimes are a close cousin of terrorism. And then uh, someone wrote me an email saying, who says it's a close cousin of terrorism? Uh, which is a fair point. Uh, when I think of hate crime, and the common definition of hate crime is a crime against members of religious, racial, or ethnic groups uh, because of their group affiliation and not because of their individual characteristics or actions. And, and in this sense, uh, hate crimes are similar to terrorism because the terrorist doesn't care about the individual victims of their violence, uh, just like a hate crime is a crime against the group, right? uh, not uh, only against the individuals uh, of the group. Uh, who are the immediate victims. Um, and I want to look at the literature on hate crimes for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, hate crimes, I think, are less constrained by organizations than terrorism. And I'll come back to that later on. Uh, hate crimes tend to be more spontaneous, more individual acts. 
So I think one is getting at more the pure supply curve, if you will, uh, uh, the uh, pure uh, willingness of individuals to commit hate crimes without being constrained or directed by a group. Um, the second reason is uh, a literature in psychology on frustration and aggression, which makes a connection between economic deprivation uh, and, and violence, uh, began uh, with a study of lynchings. So I wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about that study. In 1933, Arthur Raper wrote a remarkable book called The Tragedy of Lynchings. Uh, and in this book, he analyzed data. Uh, remember, this is 1933. He calculated the correlation between the number of lynchings occurring uh, each year in the South and uh, the per acre value of cotton. So you take the yield of the acre of cotton, uh, how much does that uh, fetch in the market as a measure of economic conditions. Uh, and he found uh, a negative correlation. And you can see he computed it to the third decimal place, minus 0.532. Uh, Raper concluded that it appears that when uh, uh, the economy in the South declines, lynchings rise. Two psychologists, Hovland and Sears, built this entire frustration aggression theory uh, around this result. Uh, this result has been revisited, and most impressively by Don Green and colleagues from Yale. And uh, Green found uh, that this is almost certainly a spurious correlation. Uh, I say that for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, if you look at the data closely, it looks like you just have two trends. But if you look at the wiggles around the trends, they look completely unrelated. So in fact, if you control for linear trend or uh, more flexible time trend in these two series, there's no relationship. So there's no effect of year-to-year movement in the price uh, of the value of cotton uh, and the number of lynchings. Uh, secondly, if you use a more standard measure of the state of the economy, uh, which wasn't available, available to Raver at the time, but if you use Kuznets' series on GDP per capita, uh, you find no relationship at all. But most importantly, uh, Raper ended his analysis in 1932. So uh, he missed the greatest natural experiment one could have, uh, the Great Depression. So the Great Depression caused the price of cotton to fall through the floor. You would expect if uh, the deprivation aggression theory was correct, the number of lynchings to rise, uh, and in fact the number of lynchings uh, either stayed constant or fell at the end of the period they were at their lowest level. Um, and if you just add eight more years of data to this series and calculate the same correlation coefficient as Raper, it falls to zero. Uh, so it looks like this empirical fact that Lawrence literature was probably uh, spurious. Well, what about the rest of the literature? The rest of the literature also shows little connection between economic conditions and hate crimes. Uh, Don Green has another study where he looked uh, using monthly data from New York City uh, on the relationship between the unemployment rate and a variety of different kinds of hate crimes, crimes against uh, gays, anti-Semitics, uh, crime, anti-black crime. Uh, and he found uh, no relationship between the unemployment rate in New York City and the number of hate crimes. Another study by Phil Jefferson and Fred Pryor, who are at Swarthmore, looked at the location of hate groups in the U.S. Uh, this is quite an interesting study. Uh, there are 3,100 counties in the U.S., and 10% of them are estimated to have a hate group. Uh, the largest one is the KKK. Uh, and this was looking in 1997. Uh, and what Jefferson and Pryor found was that there was no relationship between the likelihood of having a hate group located in the county and the unemployment rate in the county or the black-white income gap in the county 
Uh, and the correlation with the average education in the county uh, was actually the opposite of what one might expect. The higher educated counties were more likely to have hate groups. And then I mentioned earlier the work I had done on hate crime. Uh, this is together with uh, Steve Pischke, who was a uh, graduate student at Princeton. And uh, Steve and I looked at violence against foreigners in Germany, uh, primarily against Turks, looking in the early 1990s after the Berlin Wall fell down. And we found uh, no relationship looking across 543 counties in Germany uh, between ethnic violence and the unemployment rate or the average wage in the county or wage growth in the county. Um, the only variable that seemed to matter in our analysis was how far the county was located from the west. Those that were further away from the west uh, were more prone to violence. So the literature on hate crimes has kind of moved away from saying that there's a connection between hate crimes and the state of the economy to suggesting that breakdowns in law enforcement or official sanctioning of violence against minority groups uh, is a primary cause of hate crimes. Uh, there's uh, very little evidence that either cyclical changes or regional differences in economic conditions are related to hate crimes. So let me now switch uh, to talk more directly about terrorism. And uh, what I want to do is start by talking about some public opinion polls about attitudes towards uh, uh, militant activity uh, or terrorism. And this will be uh, one area where you'll see that uh, 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 views about what is or is not terrorism really do differ quite a bit. Um, I was able to obtain data from the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research in Ramallah um, on a poll that they did uh, in December of 2001, about three years ago, uh, the week before Christmas, they did this a survey of 1,357 Palestinians who were age 18 and over in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And they interviewed them face-to-face, -face, because I guess they were concerned about uh, uh, telephone availability. Um, and just to put this in, in historical context, this was before Israel's major incursion uh, into the West Bank, just before it. Um, and they asked a number of questions about attitudes towards terrorism and attitudes towards violent attacks against Israelis. Um, and I was able uh, to get the results from them, a special tabulation broken down by educational attainment and by occupation. They, they didn't have income. So uh, in the order that the questions were asked in the survey, in your opinion, are there any circumstances under which you would justify the use of terrorism to achieve political goals? You can see across the board a little over a third uh, said yes or definitely yes. Uh, uh, those with more than a high school degree. 36%, those with an elementary degree, 37.5%. Uh, the illiterates look a little bit different, uh, mostly because a large fraction said no opinion. And this is a theme I want to come back to later on. Uh, those with a low level of education seem to be, um, not surprisingly, uh, uh, less informed and uh, less willing to voice an opinion, or take a stand probably. Um, and um, but one might look at this and say a minority of the population um, uh, does uh, agree that terrorism is appropriate to achieve political goals under some circumstances, uh, uh, but uh, you know maybe one would expect it would have been higher. Now it's clear that the way terrorism is interpreted by the respondents in this poll uh, is different uh, than the way uh, many people would interpret it. For example, they were asked, um, do they consider the suicide bomb attack at the Dolphinarium nightclub in Tel Aviv, uh, which killed 21 Israeli youths, an act of terrorism. 
and 82% said no. They were also asked if they considered the attack on the World Trade Towers uh, to be a terrorist act, and a majority uh, said no. Um, and interestingly, they were asked, do you think the rest of the world views these acts as terrorist acts? Uh, and uh, overwhelmingly, just 90% said yes. So I think they recognize that uh, their interpretation is different uh, than the interpretation of many others. Uh, and you can see when it comes to questions specifically about armed attacks against Israeli civilians, um, uh, uh, views are, are a little bit, uh, uh, seem to suggest uh, more, more support. That'll be the next question. This question asks about efficacy. Do you believe that armed attacks against Israeli civilians inside Israel so far have achieved Palestinian rights in a way that negotiations could not? And about 60% said yes or definitely yes. So uh, one interpretation is that the Palestinian public believes, at, at least at this point, that the attacks uh, against Israeli civilians uh, were advancing their cause, advancing their political cause. Uh, I checked uh, recently at the last survey that was done by the Palestinian Center, uh, which was in September of this year, September 2004, so just a couple months ago, and there was little change in the responses to this question, which I have to say I found surprising. Um, given that it doesn't seem like there's been much progress. Um, uh, anyhow, uh, I think one might uh, interpret this question as the Palestinian public considers violent attacks against Israeli civilians as a rational act for advancing uh, uh, their uh, cause in ways that negotiations could not. Then the next question said, concerning the armed attacks against Israeli targets, uh, I support or strongly support or oppose or strongly oppose. And you can see when this is broken down by education, uh, if anything, those with a higher level of education are more supportive than uh, the illiterates. Uh, high school degree or more, 81.5% said they support or strongly support. Uh, illiterates, 72.2%. And what's really quite striking is how high the support is, uh, especially given the earlier uh, response to the direct question about uh, views towards terrorism. Um, and uh, the difference here between uh, those with uh, uh, more than a high school education and uh, the illiterates is statistically significant. Um, and it's really quite large. You know, the, the difference in support for the illiterates is 46 percentage points support over opposition. And the difference for those with more than a high school degree is 68 points. Um, so uh, at least within uh, the public, uh, support for armed attacks, uh, I would call them terrorist attacks, uh, against Israeli civilians uh, are um, uh, uh, slightly uh, are higher among those uh, with a higher level of education. Um, if you break it down by occupation, you see a somewhat similar pattern. The students are the most militant. 90% of the students support or strongly support these attacks. And remember, this is a survey of people age 18 and over. So the students are primarily going, going to be post-secondary students, college students, or graduate students. Um, merchants and professionals, 87%. The unemployed had the lowest support, but it was still at 74%. Um, so looking across the occupational structure, there, um, uh, there's not much evidence that um, the most disadvantaged are uh, the ones who are most supportive. Um, and these results shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, Howard Rosenthal pointed out to me that in 1958, Daniel Lerner wrote a book called The Passing of Traditional Society, 
which studied public opinion polls about extremist views in Middle Eastern countries in six countries. And he reached the same conclusion. Uh, he wrote, poverty prevails only among the apolitical masses. The data obviate the, the conventional assumption that the extremists are simply the have-nots. Uh, and these data point in the same direction. Uh, now, of course, uh, it's possible that um, changes in economic circumstances uh, are what matter, not the level. So uh, maybe the merchants and professionals were hit hardest, which I think they were, by the first intifada. Maybe that's responsible for uh, uh, the opinions that are expressed here. Uh, and of course, one has to draw a distinction between what someone says in a public opinion poll and who actually participates in terrorism. Uh, but this does say something about the environment in which uh, uh, these acts are taking place. Uh, wanted to say a little bit about uh, trends over, over time. And this is over a short period of time. Uh, the same surveys uh, asked uh, questions about the economic situation. Uh, do you think the situation was better the last three years than it was before? Do you think the situation was uh, worse? Um, than, uh, uh, than it was uh, three years ago. And uh, what you can see is in the late 1990s, before the Second Intifada broke out, uh, there was uh, belief that the economy, economy was improving. And this also corresponds with data on unemployment. The unemployment rate had fallen, it was still high, it was still about 17, 18% uh, early in 2000, uh, but it had fallen from a high of 40% in the um, mid 1990s. So uh, if anything, it looks like economic conditions were improving in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And I've done some time series analysis trying to connect the frequency of attacks over time to the economic circumstances uh, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. And uh, there I find uh, no relationship um, uh, between those two, those two series. Uh, so uh, what I want to do next is talk about uh, who participates in terrorism? What do we know about the terrorists themselves? And uh, I thought I'd start with a powerful piece of anecdotal evidence. Uh, this was from an article in The New Yorker uh, by Nasra Hassan, who is a UN relief worker. And she interviewed 250 militants and their associates uh, who were involved in the Palestinian cause in the late 1990s. Uh, the number of 250 is, is, is a little bit of an exaggeration in that the number of um, um, uh, suicide bomb attacks, if you want to kind of link them together, uh, is, is quite a bit smaller. Um, so these 250 uh, people who she interviewed uh, probably are people who were involved in, in uh, uh, suicide bomb attacks of 30 or 40 individuals. Uh, anyhow, this is what she concluded. None of them, them here is the suicide bombers, were uneducated, desperately poor, simple-minded, or depressed. Many were middle class, and unless they were fugitives, held paying jobs. Two were the sons of millionaires. Uh, one Hamas leader who she interviewed said, our biggest problem is the hordes of young men who beat on our doors, clamoring to be sent on suicide missions. It is difficult to select only a few. And uh, when I read that, uh, when this came out, right after September 11th, I thought, that just seems hard to believe. But then you see the wave of suicide attacks that took place afterwards, and it seems quite plausible. Um, and this leads to a, a, an issue that I'm going to come back to. Uh, how do the groups screen those who want to participate in terrorism, which I think is an important part of the story. Um, other work that's been done by psychologists, most importantly, uh, Ariel Morari of Tel Aviv University, finds when he interviews uh, individuals who intended to go on suicide missions, 
but they were thwarted for one reason or another. Equipment might have malfunctioned, for example, that they were not psychologically abnormal, which is consistent with Nasser Hassan's observations. We had a graduate student at Princeton last year who's now at the Rand Institute, Claude Berube, who wrote his thesis on participation in suicide attacks against Israel. And he collected data on members of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad who carried out attacks against Israel from 1987 to 2002, most of them in the late 1990s and early 2000. And he has data on about 285 individuals. This looks just at those who were involved in suicide bombing attacks. And the way he collected his data is interesting. The organizations write obituaries, biographies, about their martyrs, which is an important step in them becoming martyrs. And from those obituaries, he was able to collect information on the likelihood that the participants grew up in poverty, had some information about their family background, and also, in most cases, about their education. And he compared the poverty rate of the suicide bombers to the poverty rate of the population based on uh, labor force surveys of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, and you can see that the suicide bombers uh, were much less likely to come from families that were impoverished. And if you look by education, you see a really dramatic difference. Uh, the suicide bombers, more than half of them had education past high school, uh, compared to the population where it was about 15% of the population the same age had education past high school. And uh, this is not so surprising in that the organizations actually recruit on college campuses. And it's also not so surprising when you go back to that other slide which showed that the most militant segment of society was uh, uh, the students. Um, yet it does suggest that these are individuals who have, have opportunities, or at least um, they are um, uh, less likely to be uh, impoverished. So uh, uh, this uh, tends to weigh against the standard stereotype. And much of the other evidence that looks at the characteristics of participants in terrorism points in the same direction. I'll say a little bit about uh, work I did on members of Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, I, sh I should also be clear, Hezbollah is a very complicated organization. It, um, I saw it just got approved for a satellite television station in Europe. And uh, it also has a political party. It uh, provides social services. Um, and it has a militant wing. It started in uh, resistance against Israeli occupation in southern Lebanon. Uh, it appears to get support from both Iran and from uh, Syria. Uh, and uh, Hezbollah is listed as a, a terrorist organization by the US State Department and the British Home Office. Uh, Hezbollah is believed to have been responsible for the bombings of the US uh, embassy and marine barracks in Lebanon, which caused the largest number of uh, American deaths in a suicide in a uh, terrorist attack uh, until September 11th. Uh, they also were involved in the bombing of the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996. Uh, in, a, in a really cryptic statement, Richard Armitage said that um, Al-Qaeda might be the B team of terrorists, Hezbollah is the A team. It was never really clear why he said that. Um, so uh, anyhow, uh, I looked at data on uh, members of Hezbollah who were uh, killed in uh, actions against, mostly against Israel in the late 1980s and uh, collected the data in the same way. Actually, I collected the data from the master's thesis that was done in Israel. Uh, 
on 125 deceased uh, shahids, uh, individuals who were involved with Hezbollah. Now, not all of them uh, I would classify as terrorists, so I should be careful here to think of this modeling militancy uh, or resistance. Um, some of them were individuals who were involved in the types of bombings that I mentioned, and others were individuals who were resisting uh, occupation. Uh, some were individuals who were assassinated by the Israeli military. Um, and I was able to get information on uh, whether each individual grew up in an impoverished uh, family and their educational attainment, uh, some other characteristics. Uh, I never thought it would be easier to get data on members of a terrorist group than on the population from which they came from. It turned out to be quite hard to get data uh, from a population survey in Lebanon, but I was able to get Lebanese population survey, um, actually from a census that was done in 1996. And I limited the sample to people who were the same age. And there are a lot of problems in making these kinds of comparisons which I want to be upfront about. Uh, as I mentioned, not all of the members of Hezbollah were engaged in terrorist acts. Uh, it's not clear whether the deceased members are representative of the whole organization. Uh, they could uh, be the foot soldiers who are the least educated, or maybe they're the ones who take on the most daring uh, missions and, and, and they're the uh, most elite. Uh, on the other hand, what's interesting is it looks like the 129 who were killed were about a third of the organization. Some estimates of the uh, size of uh, Hezbollah at this time period. Uh, the data are obviously noisy. The sample is not uh, all that big. And there are problems with the population sample as well. The year doesn't align perfectly. Uh, I don't have data on religion, although I think I have a way to address that. Um, and um, poverty might not be defined equivalently in the two, in the two series. Uh, anyhow, my results look a lot like what uh, Claude Berry found. Um, the deceased members of Hezbollah were less likely to grow up in an impoverished family. 28% uh, of them came from impoverished backgrounds versus 33% of the Lebanese population of the same age, same age range. Uh, that difference was not statistically significant. Uh, if you look by education, the differences are, uh, are significant. Uh, members of Hezbollah uh, were better educated. 47% had a secondary degree or higher versus 38% of the population. Um, and um, members of Hezbollah were a little bit older, a little bit younger uh, than the population. So I mentioned I didn't have information on religion, which is potentially important. Um, but I could do uh, uh, something which comes close. Uh, in other analysis that I did, I was able to look across different districts in Lebanon, um, and I looked at the heavily Shiite areas. The uh, members of Hezbollah came from southern Lebanon. Uh, primarily, uh, they were uh, almost certainly all uh, members of uh, the Shiite sect. So uh, what I did was to limit the sample to uh, the heavily Shiite areas, and that's in that column that I was highlighting there. And this is from some logistic estimates where I simultaneously for these uh, factors that uh, might be related to terrorism. What did, what did I find? Well, the results are pretty similar to what I showed you before, although even a little bit stronger. Uh, those uh, 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 individuals who attended secondary school or higher uh, were more likely to be uh, uh, members of Hezbollah, brought um, to Hezbollah. When I look at uh, uh, what looks like the population centers where members of Hezbollah would have come from, uh, and that's just on the margin of being statistically significant, uh, which means that uh, it's possible it occurred by chance. It's probably unlikely. Um, and uh, if you look at poverty, that uh, differential is really quite significant. And the reason uh, why this result is stronger than what I had earlier is that southern Lebanon tends to be poorer. And uh, the heavily Shiite areas tend to be poorer. 
So when you compare members of Hezbollah to others in the same area, they tend to be uh, the more advantaged. Uh, I could go on about many other groups. Let me uh, say a little bit about uh, the Israeli uh, uh, underground terrorist group, uh, Gush uh, Emunim, although I could correct my pronunciation later. Uh, thanks. So uh, anyhow, uh, this is uh, uh, a group that in the early 1980s attempted to blow up the dome of the Rock Mosque. Uh, fortunately, they didn't succeed. Uh, they assassinated or attempted to assassinate mayors in the West Bank. Uh, they killed 23 Palestinians, uh, wounded many others. Uh, they were eventually captured uh, and imprisoned by Israel, although I think that many of them were released. And uh, when they were in prison, one of them wrote a book uh, about uh, about their group. And from that, we were able to get information on who participated in the group. There were 27 of them. And we didn't compare them to the Israeli population, but it's clear that they come from high socioeconomic status occupations. It included engineers, teachers, computer programmers, uh, geographer, uh, combat pilot. Uh, and the typical work that's done in the terrorism area is a little bit like this, kind of looking at biographies, uh, often tilted more towards the leaders of groups, which is a little bit uh, worrisome. But the typical study that's, that's been done in the past uh, looks at newspaper reports about who participated, like who participated in the Madrid bombing, for example, and tries to characterize their socioeconomic status. Uh, the typical study doesn't systematically compare them to the population, but when you look at uh, the terrorist literature, the results almost invariably point in the same direction. The only exception I've been able to find, and I can't explain why it's different, is Northern Ireland. Uh, the uh, 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 terrorists from Northern Ireland tend to be uh, drawn disproportionately from the lower, uh, lower class. And uh, Chris Paxson, who actually once discussed one of my papers, uh, Actually, I should clarify. I think it's an end of the story. She was supposed to discuss it, um, but uh, um, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. Um, uh, she had done some analysis of public opinion in Northern Ireland and found similar kind of patterns, which is uh, you know different pattern than what I found for the Palestinians. Those who were most supportive uh, of uh, um, uh, troubles were those from uh, lower socioeconomic status categories. Uh, but in the typical study, uh, the backgrounds of the terrorists jump out as being uh, higher socioeconomic status families. Uh, and even though they're not logistic estimates comparing them to the population, it seems pretty clear that that's uh, uh, a common uh, result. And I, I wanted to, just to give this additional credibility, point out that the CIA had asked for, the CIA advisory had asked the Library of Congress 1999 to do a study for them or give them a report surveying the available literature on the characteristics of terrorists. And they produced a report called The Sociology and Psychology of Terrorism, uh, which is a remarkable report because the Bush administration pulled this out after September 11th and said this report was prepared for the Clinton administration. And uh, in here you'll see that there's a discussion about terrorists using uh, airplanes uh, as weapons. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So I, I, I looked at the report, and the report's fascinating. I read through it. I couldn't find any mention about terrorists using planes as weapons. And then in a footnote, or very obscure, there was a reference to possibly uh, um, uh, putting bombs on an airplane and using them as weapons. 
And uh, what was fascinating was the logic behind it, because the uh, report went through much of the pre previous literature, which is like what I just described, kind of discussing the biographies of the terrorists, and said, you know, the terrorists look like they're pretty well educated. They could probably do some sophisticated attacks. This would be a sophisticated attack. So it, 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 uh, uh, the authors of the report, I think, deserve a tremendous amount of credit. On the other hand, this report was kind of the lowest of the low in terms of being in the loop. Um, and the way that this was phrased was as if President Clinton should have spotted this, where I'm sure it uh, never entered the White House. Um, so I think the evidence is pretty clear at the individual level. Those who participate in terrorism, with the exception of Northern Ireland, I would say, uh, are drawn from uh, uh, the ranks of the better educated and uh, higher income families. Uh, terrorists are not drawn disproportionately from the ranks of the poor. Uh, but it still might be possible that poverty, uh, suffering of countrymen motivates the terrorists, and I call this the Robin Hood model of terrorism. Um, so uh, maybe an individual circumstances are not what's motivating them, him or her, to participate in terrorism, but it's concern for what's going on in the country. And to study that issue, one really needs to look at a broader level, at a societal level or at a country level. So that's what I want to turn to next, uh, work I've done looking across country. Um, and the uh, difficulty in this area is data. Uh, there, there's uh, a tremendous uh, lack of data uh, for the study of terrorism. Um, and uh, the most authoritative unclassified document uh, that one could get is from the State Department. They have an annual report called Patterns of Global Terrorism. The report's mandated by Congress. Um, and uh, uh, I, I said unclassified. Uh, but I'm pretty confident that the classified data are not much better. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld complained that we have no metrics to evaluate uh, how we're doing in the war on terrorism. Um, I don't know if you recall that uh, memo that he had written that had leaked uh, to the press. Uh, so if he's not seeing uh, reliable classified data, uh, then uh, I suspect that they don't exist. Um, so uh, the data in this area uh, are clearly imperfect. And they're less or more imperfect than I realized. Uh, when I started using them, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, what I've done is to go through these various reports and collect uh, 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 information on individual terrorist acts. And uh, the data are potentially quite rich. I mean, it's an area where you say, boy, it's a shame that there aren't better, better data. Because if you think about it, and the way I've organized the database, is there are 150 countries with more than a million people. The other ones I don't consider big enough to worry about. So just focus on the 150 countries with more than a million people. Each country, you know, people from each country could potentially target people from every other country as uh, 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 a group that it wants to uh, uh, conduct a terrorist act against. So you've got a 150 by 150 matrix to study. And you could connect uh, lots of characteristics of the origin countries, the country that the perpetrators come from, uh, to that matrix, and you could also connect characteristics of the target countries to try to uh, model terrorism. And that's what, uh, what I've been working on. And the variables I've been focusing on uh, are uh, GDP per capita as a measure of uh, economic well-being, uh, measures of freedom, political rights, uh, religion, population, many others I'll, I'll go into. Uh, so more about this data set. The uh, uh, State Department uh, uses the following definition, which is uh, specified in the Act of Congress, which requires the report. 
The term terrorism means premeditated, politically motivated violence perpetrated against non-combatant targets by subnational groups or clandestine agents, usually intended to influence an audience. Uh, the term international terrorism means terrorism involving citizen, citizens or the territory of more than one country. Uh, so uh, this would rule out the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building by Timothy McVeigh, because it turns out there was nobody from another country in Oklahoma City, really from the building, uh, who was uh, affected by that act of terrorism. Uh, had there been someone else, it would have, you know, had there been someone passing through from Mexico, it would have been considered an international act of terrorism with this definition. Um, there's an interesting addition that the State Department made. The term non-combatant is interpreted to include, in addition to civilians, military personnel, who at the time of the incident are unarmed and are not on duty, uh, also consider acts of terrorism attacks on military installations or military personnel. But a state of military hostilities does not exist at the site. It would be interesting to see how they classify Iraq next year. Um, anyhow, um, uh, that in principle is the definition. This is what the cover of the report looks like. And uh, the latest report came out April 29, uh, 2004. And the real value of the report to researchers, I think, is the Appendix A. Appendix A gives a chronology of significant terrorist incidents. And this is basically a short synopsis of each of the significant terrorist events. And the act specifies, actually, that the Secretary of State is supposed to uh, uh, describe countries that are involved in significant terrorist attacks. It doesn't uh, say what significant means. It leads, leaves it to the judgment of the Secretary of State. Um, and uh, this report is not a model for how data or information should be reported by the U.S. government. There's a little description that says, the incidents listed have met the U.S. government's incident review panel criteria. An international terrorist incident is judged significant if it results in loss of life or serious injury to persons, major property damage, and or is an act or attempted act that could reasonably be expected to create the conditions noted. Well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, first thing one wonders about is, what is the U.S. government's incident review panel? Where do they get their information from? None of that is, is specified in the report. And in fact, uh, we've only recently learned uh, some of that, uh, 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 how, how this is all done. Um, now, uh, if you look through these summaries, they, they look like they could be quite helpful. For example, January 5th in Israel and Tel Aviv, two suicide bombers attacked simultaneously, killing 23 persons, including 15 Israelis, two Romanians, one Ghanaian, uh, one Belt Bulgarian, three Chinese, uh, wounding 107 others. The Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade was responsible. So it has information on who they believed carried out the act, who was affected by the act, where it took place, when it took place. And, and we coded all of that information uh, up from 1997 to 2003. Uh, we had a total of 956 incidents, I believe. Uh, and that forms uh, the basis of the data set. Uh, now, I had used these data a little bit uh, in the past, before this year's report came out. And something I noticed was that um, uh, in the body of the report, a bunch of nice-looking statistical graphs are provided. Um, and the graphs don't, are not limited to significant terrorist incidents. They show the total number of terrorist incidents. And if you count up the number of significant incidents and the number of, uh, uh, compare that to the total, um, in the early years of the report, they were pretty far apart. And now they're pretty similar. So uh, in other words, 
the total number of attacks had been falling, but the number of significant attacks, which are the only ones you can actually verify what they were and what they include, were rising. So uh, David Layton and I thought, well, we ought to watch this report, uh, uh, this year's report closely, because maybe uh, the government with the war on terrorism going on would try to spin the numbers. Um, and uh, we, we, we did uh, uh, look you know, at the report as soon as it came out with that in mind. Uh, and what we found, I have to say, really astonished us. Uh, and Kathy Rampella, who's here, helped us uh, uh, to do this. Uh, uh, the first thing we saw when we looked through the list of significant attacks is that it didn't end at the end of the calendar year. It ended on November 11th. Well, you know, maybe it's possible that there were no terrorist attacks after November 11th, but that seems unlikely. In fact, uh, I remember uh, well, because my son's bar mitzvah was November 15th, that that morning there were two terrorist attacks on synagogues in Turkey. So uh, we called up the State Department on several, several tries to find out What's going on here? Are the tables okay in the body of the report? And this is just incomplete oversight. Uh, and they never called us back. Um, and uh, we saw some other kind of strange things in the report. And also, this year's report uh, was spun in ways in which previous reports were not. For example, when it was provided to the Senate and the Congress, uh, there was a cover letter that said, uh, 2003 saw the lowest annual level of terrorist attacks since 1969. By the way, we still can't figure out how they could compare it to 69. The report only started in 81. Um, an indication of the great progress that has been made in fighting terrorism after the horrific events of September 11, 2001. Um, and you know, we were puzzled. Uh, when we add up the number of significant attacks, <laughs> we saw the highest number since the report started in 1981. So this all prompted David Layton uh, and me to write an op-ed in the Washington Post. And um, uh, we wrote the op-ed right away. Uh, we sent it to them on, um, uh, I think, June 1st, and they accepted it the next day. And they said, well, we'll run it soon. And it didn't run, uh, I'm sorry, on May 1st. They accepted it on May 2nd. And they, they sat on it for a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, they had a lot of other stuff to write about. This was when the Abu Ghraib uh, um, uh, scandal had broken out. So um, uh, they did eventually run our, our piece on May 17th. And, and by the way, <laughs> Uh, shortly after, we saw some other mistakes which we hadn't realized. Like the report lists the number of people who were killed, number of fatalities from terrorist attacks. And if you add them up from the back, it was twice as high from the incomplete chronology as was listed in the body of the report. And you say, what is going on here? So uh, in our op-ed, we pointed out uh, that the number of significant events looks like it's at its highest level uh, since the data have been collected, 36% uh, higher than it was in 2001. Uh, which contrasts with the State Department saying that it fell by 46%, their total number fell in that period. And we said there's no explanation of what a non-significant attack is. Why would you care, by definition, if it's non-significant? Why is that uh, important? Um, and uh, we published this piece, which I thought uh, was pretty striking, and we expected right away some response from the State Department. Um, and, and nothing happened. Oh, I should also mention, uh, through a connection of a Woodrow Wilson School, former Woodrow Wilson School student who works for Congressman Henry Waxman, uh, we gave uh, the Congressman's staff a copy of our op-ed as soon as he wrote it. And then as soon as it came out, uh, he had about a six-page letter that he sent to Secretary of State Colin Powell asking for an explanation. It was really a well-crafted letter. The State Department must have been scratching their heads saying, how could this arrive the same day that this came out? <laughs> um, and um, uh, 
there was silence from the State Department. It was really kind of, kind of interesting to me. And no follow-up by other reporters. And when the re results were released, the, uh, uh, reporters only asked softball questions. It was really uh, quite striking to me. Then on June 10, 2004, uh, Richard Boucher, who's the spokesman, uh, one of the spokesmen for the State Department, uh, said uh, that they had uh, discovered that there were mistakes in the 2004 uh, Patterns of Global Terrorism report uh, and that uh, they were going to work on correcting those mistakes. Um, and uh, that got the press interested. And Colin Powell, whoops, this is out of order. Sorry about that. I need to go to this. I told you it would be multimedia. Uh, Colin Powell went on Meet the Press. And um, as you'll see, Tim Russert had some questions for him about this episode. And 
last time you were here about a month ago, Mr. Secretary, I asked about your presentation. Now I can go to my next film. Um, if you thought uh, Tim Russert was tough on him, uh, this next uh, report was really quite devastating. June 14, 
say questionable half truth. <laughs> page six, you're fine. So that's probably how most of the students uh, so, <laughs> uh, learned about this. Um, and I should say a little bit about you know, what we know about what caused the errors. And I, I think uh, John Stewart was, in a way, too tough uh, on, uh, on the State Department because I do think that they were, for the most part, honest mistakes. And uh, Paul Krugman wrote this up in the New York Times, and he, and he quoted me as saying that, that I'm a forgiving soul, which, which I appreciate but you know, when you dig into this, if they were going to try to spin the numbers, they wouldn't have stopped the calendar November 11th. That's pretty transparent. Um, and uh, what had happened was this new group was set up called the Terrorism Threat Integration Center. Uh, George Bush made a big deal about uh, uh, starting this group to coordinate terrorism, terrorist information uh, in his State of the Union address in 2003. And they clearly made this a low priority. The people who were assigned to work on it um, uh, I, I think didn't view it as their most important work. So Kofor Black explained, he, gave, he, he recently resigned from the State Department, by the way, but he, he gave the following explanation. Uh, the errors resulted from a combination of things, inattention, personnel shortages, and database that is awkward and is antiquated and needs to have very proficient input be made in order for to be sure that the number will spill out then to the different categories that are being captured, uh, which wasn't the, the most eloquent uh, pros. Uh, anyhow, uh, they had contractors who were entering the data. They didn't know how to use the program. The November 11th uh, deadline, which is what the spokesman originally said was the reason you know it had to go to the printer, uh, was not, I don't think, accurate because um, it's just that they entered the data much later. Uh, it didn't go to the printer until obviously it would go after November. Um, so uh, uh, David Layton and I wrote a piece trying to be constructive in foreign affairs, which uh, has the title which I'm using today, Misunderestimating Terrorism, where we uh, gave some suggestions for improving the data. And we thought uh, that economic statistics provide a good model. Uh, economic statistics are trusted. Uh, there have been cases in the past when they were manipulated, uh, but there are some safeguards. So we propose that the uh, State Department have a clear and consistent definition. And if you look at the data, it's not always consistent. Uh, some acts in Chechnya are treated as international and some are not, and it's not clear why not. Sometimes uh, simultaneous bombings count as two incidents, sometimes as uh, just one. Uh, that the information has to be verifiable, which seems pretty elementary, but uh, uh, somewhat novel at the State Department. Uh, that's why the chronology is so important. One can actually go through the list and say, does this make sense? Where with the count on total number of attacks, you have no uh, way of checking. A and it's become clear that the uh, incident review panel is not looking at as comprehensive a list of non-significant attacks as it was previously. Um, David and I called this, in, in the piece we wrote, asymmetric vetting. And to the extent, extent that there was spinning, and there clearly was a spinning, um, uh, where the State Department is probably most guilty is uh, not catching the mistakes, because they were pretty transparent. And uh, if the glossy figures that they showed off had showed the opposite pattern, that it was the largest number of terrorism, uh, terrorist events in over 20 years, I'm pretty sure they would have taken a second look. So there's an asymmetry in the way uh, the data were checked. Uh, the next recommendation we had, I think, is an important one. Uh, and this is the way the critical economic statistics are treated. Uh, when the unemployment rate is produced, 
there's a requirement that uh, enables the career staff at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who computed the unemployment rate uh, and prepared the report, to explain what the number is and to provide technical explanations uh, of the data. Uh, and they have an hour period where political appointees are not allowed to comment on the data. Uh, after an hour, the political appointees can say anything they want about it. Uh, and I, I was actually involved in a situation where we had to tell President Clinton that he couldn't talk about the unemployment rate for an hour. Uh, and he didn't take it so well. Uh, but he did abide by it. Um, and uh, that's been in place ever since Richard Nixon tried to uh, manipulate the interpretation of unemployment data. Uh, the other thing uh, that we suggested is that the State Department created statistically. The State Department is the only uh, cabinet department that doesn't have a statistical agency within it. Kind of amazing. Kind of amazing that the other ones all do. Um, and uh, there is some, some, you know, kind of positive things that came out of this because the uh, Inspector General of the State Department issued a report last week. Uh, it was just put up on the web, uh, actually this week, even though it's dated August. Uh, and um, in the report, the State Department, the Inspector General went through um, the problems uh, with the patterns report and uh, attributed most of them, as I uh, have, to honest errors. Um, but made a number of important recommendations, many of which uh, Leighton and I also had made. Uh, so we were pleased to see that. The one that they didn't make that I thought they should have is to have a division between the career professionals who prepare the report uh, and when uh, the uh, political appointees get to interpret it. Um, so uh, maybe that will happen. But I, I, I was impressed because they suggested that someone with some statistics training be involved in the report. Um, they suggested that minutes be kept from the incident review panel. Um, so that you could actually reconstruct how the decisions were made. Uh, they suggested that all of the data be verifiable, uh, replicable, uh, so, and, and also better vetting. So it was all, uh, uh, I thought, positive. And some of those have already been adopted. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the next year's, next year's report. Um, so uh, a new report was issued, and uh, I uh, have gone through it, and uh, uh, with Kathy's help, and coded up uh, all 956 events from 97 to 2003. We coded where the events occurred, the country of origin of the perpetrators, who the target of the attack was. Now, it's kind of hard to infer the motivation, where we didn't want to do that. So we um, attributed the target to the group that was most affected. Uh, and then we had a secondary target if, if uh, you know, there were multiple groups that were affected uh, by, by the attack. Uh, we coded up the group that was responsible or suspected and some description of the event. Uh, now, these data clearly are imperfect. Uh, I hope that in the revised report, uh, the data are better. Uh, but even with the revised data, uh, there are some problems. Uh, for example, when you code up an event, there's some threshold for being a significant event. And uh, Colin Powell did provide some explanation, or his staff provided some explanation, who the incident review panel is, what they mean by significant. And uh, uh, not all significant events are equally significant. So September 11th counted as four separate events. Um, and that's probably more significant than an ATM machine being bombed in Greece, which counts as one event in, in this data set. Um, so uh, uh, there is some question about you know, the significant, you know, how to code, how to, how to compare these, uh, these, these data. Uh, on the other hand, to the extent that one is interested in kind of the intent of the attackers, uh, so if you go back to the first Trade Center bombing, where seven people were killed, that, that came very close to bringing down the whole building. So in some sense, it's, it's, it's the attempts that are relevant, I think, if, if you want to get at what's causing the frequency 
of, of these acts, and I think of the outcome as being somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat random. So I think I could defend looking at the number of as a main measure, but one might want to have uh, some alternative rankings of, of how significant the events are. Um, a lot of the attacks were on embassies, and we coded those up as the target was a country that owned, owned the embassy. Uh, 280 events were in India, uh, mostly in Kashmir. And um, what's interesting is the State Department treats them as international events, so they must implicitly think that Pakistan is involved, uh, but they don't say that in the report. And the way we attributed the data, we attributed that to Pakistan, because um, uh, we think the perpetrators were mainly from Pakistan or uh, organized and funded by them. Uh, 87 were in Colombia, which is the second largest number, uh, 31 in Israel. Uh, they have trouble figuring out what to do with Israel, because the West Bank and Gaza uh, are part of Israel. So they don't treat them as international attacks unless someone from another country was in, uh, outside of Israel was injured in the attack. And I mentioned there was some problems with consistency. So what did we find? Uh, two-thirds of these terrorist events had organizations that were involved. And th that should be at least two-thirds. Uh, two-thirds of it was known. 91% of the events, there were multiple perpetrators. Uh, we looked at whether there was a difference between the individuals who carried out the attack in terms of religion and uh, the targets. 62% uh, of the cases, there were differences in religion, uh, which might sound like a large number, but it turns out if you compute, what's the chance of any two people in the world bumping into each other, uh, you know, randomly bumping into each other and being of a different religion, it's 77%. Or if you did the same calculation within countries, it's 27%. So I don't know, you know what the right metric is. But you'll see, I think the role of religion in terrorism has been vastly overestimated, vastly exaggerated. Um, when we look at suicide attacks, however, in 90% of the cases, there's a difference in the religion between uh, the perpetrators and the victims. 3.5% uh, of the attacks were on embassies. Uh, almost 5% of all the attacks were suicide bombings in this period. 12% uh, of the attacks targeted the U.S. We were a little worried that this might be skewed. You know, the data might uh, uh, be focused more on the U.S. 7% of the attacks were on international organizations. So the fact that the UN and Red Cross were bombed in Iraq uh, shouldn't have come as such a surprise from historical trends. Um, so with the data, we uh, could look at the place, the target, and the origin. They're not the same thing. Uh, and uh, in 88% of the cases, the place where the uh, attack occurred and the perpetrators were from the same place. So the place was the same as the origin. Uh, in 47%, the origin and the target were different. Um, I, I should have said this on the first line. Uh, what this suggests is most terrorism is local. Uh, most international terrorism is still local. So the typical terrorist event that you should think about is Daniel Pearl being kidnapped and then murdered uh, in Pakistan, not September 11th. That seems somewhat unusual when uh, terrorists actually cross borders. Um, it's usually that they uh, find someone in their midst Another, another country. Um, so uh, uh, you can see also in this data set, in 45% of the cases, the place where the event occurred, the country of the main group affected, and the country of the perpetrators were the same, uh, which is a little bit puzzling for international terrorism. That sounds more like domestic terrorism. But in those cases, a secondary or tertiary group that was affected was from uh, another country. Uh, and one uh, a fact that gives me a little bit of confidence in these data is that there are, there's one other comparable type of data set. It's organized by place where the event occurred, so you can't divide the data the way I have. It was uh, collected by Todd Sandler and others. It's called the Iterate data set. 
the correlation between the iterate data set and our data set, if you throw out in kind of an outlier, is 0.9. So it looks like they're picking up the same kind uh, of same kind of event, similar kind of pattern. The iterate data is based purely on press reports, um, and you can't do the kinds of analysis that I would like to do uh, with the iterate data. So let me tell you about the analysis briefly. Uh, what we've done is to take every possible pair of countries. So we've got this 150 by 150 matrix for 23,500 cells, and we actually drop off the diagonal. Um, so we, we, we uh, drop cases where the uh, origin of the perpetrators and the target were the same country. Uh, and we relate the number of, uh, of incidents carried out by people from country I on country J to uh, characteristics of country I or characteristics of country J or to uh, uh, characteristics that affect both of the countries. Uh, for example, the distance between them. So we call that an XIJ variable. Um, and uh, we estimated uh, count regression models, um, which is just a fancy way of saying we were looking for the factors that are associated with terrorist acts being carried out from people from country I on those from country J. And uh, we looked mostly at income, measures of civil liberties, and uh, some other variables, which I'll explain uh, our main findings briefly. And uh, this is really a rich data set, even though most of the cells have no, nothing going on. There were no terrorist acts carried out by Americans on Canadians in this period. Um, so um, um, uh, statistically, it's kind of a hard problem to look at because most of the cells are really empty. Um, so what do we find for income? The results for income indicated that if we don't control for anything else, the uh, uh, lower income countries actually are more likely to be uh, um, origins of terrorism. It wasn't a very strong correlation, but it was statistically significant. When we control for other variables, most importantly, if we control just for the available civil liberties in the country, that relationship went away. And I can show you uh, that in this chart. Uh, this is going to be a bit complicated, but uh, we group the origin countries into quartiles, uh, the poorest quarter, next poorest, uh, next, uh, uh, next, and then the richest quarter. And this looks just at the bottom fourth of countries, the poorest countries, and who, uh, who they target. And this controls, in this, in, in, in this chart, I've been controlling uh, for civil liberties and the distance between the countries, and that's all. And uh, these results are normalized, so it's compared to the lowest income quartile. Um, and uh, you could see that the lowest income quartiles, the group that seems to be most affected by terrorism, the targets tend to be the richest. That's Q4. Now I could, now I could show you all the other ones. Um, and you can see a couple of things here. One, as you, look, as you look from poorest to richest, the bars are not getting taller. So that suggests that conditional on these other variables, once we hold constant these other aspects of the origin countries, there's not an effect of, of being a poor country on the likelihood of carrying out a terrorist attack. Uh, but when you look at the targets, the targets tend to be wealthier countries. So in each of these uh, 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 origin groups, the group that's most likely to be targeted is uh, a group in the richest group, in, in the richest set of countries. And this is true even if you drop the U.S. from this data set. So it's not being driven by the U.S. So the targets look like they are uh, wealthier countries. Now, another really strong result in the data set is that the origins look like they have 
or, or uh, are, are strongly correlated, put it that way, with the available civil liberties in the country. So uh, this is based on a measure of uh, civil liberties in a country. And by civil liberties, uh, I mean the right uh, to uh, freedom of expression and uh, uh, freedom of association. Uh, the Freedom House organization has an index of the available civil liberties in a country. And we group these into countries at the low level, medium level, and high level. Uh, and you can see two things. One, as you go from low to high, uh, for the origin country, the amount of terrorism declined. So the countries which have a low uh, level of civil liberties, few opportunities to express oneself uh, in the political process, for example, uh, are the countries that have the greatest amount, uh, of, are the countries which are most likely to be origin terrorism. Uh, and then secondly, you can see when you look within groups of countries, the targets tend to be countries that have uh, more civil liberties. Democracies tend to be targeted. Um, and uh, that pattern shows up over and over again uh, in our data. Uh, we looked at GDP growth, and we had uh, fairly mixed results, not really a strong pattern of uh, recent GDP growth affecting um, the likelihood of a country being an origin country for terrorism. Uh, population mattered a lot, not so surprising. Uh, bigger countries are more likely to have terrorists, and bigger countries are uh, more likely to be targets of terrorism. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, getting data on the amount of trade between the countries. Thinking uh, maybe if a country imports more from another country or exports more to that country, there are more ties between them. Uh, and I put in parentheses kind of a negative effect. There was a weak effect of international trade, but it wasn't statistically significant. Uh, the distance between the countries had a big effect. And this was actually a lot of fun calculating the distance between 11,175 pairs of countries. Um, but there's a formula which helps you to do that if you know the latitude and longitude, so it was pretty trivial uh, in the end. Um, and uh, distance has a big effect. And remember, this is dropping the cases where uh, distance was zero, where the uh, origin of the perpetrators and the target were the same. Uh, literacy had uh, no effect. And we looked at female literacy rate and male literacy rate separately. Uh, religion uh, had some impact. Uh, if we don't control for civil liberties, uh, countries that have a higher fraction Muslim are more likely to be origin, a lot more likely to be origin countries for terrorism. Once we control for civil liberties, that effect essentially went away. There was no difference uh, between uh, predominantly Christian countries or predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, although we did find, uh, when we compare Muslim and Christian countries, even conditional on these other variables, that they were more likely to be origin countries uh, than countries that were predominantly uh, Buddhist. Uh, then I added uh, most recently this new variable, occupier and occupied. Uh, occupier is linked so that uh, if you are a country that occupies another country, like the U.S. is currently occupying Iraq, does that make you more likely to be a target? And if you're occupied, are you more likely to be uh, a supplier of terrorism? And uh, occupations do seem to be related uh, to terrorism. Uh, these results are not uh, very different than a couple of other studies uh, that have recently occurred in the literature. The most interesting is this one by Alberto Abadie. Uh, he looked at a risk rating for insurance. Uh, there's a real economic variable for you. Uh, for both domestic and international terrorism. And he found that the terrorist risk is not significantly higher for poor countries once the effects of political freedom are taken into account, which is uh, similar to what I found. Uh, these results, however, are very different from what one finds in the literature on civil war. 
in the literature on uh, uh, internal conflict, uh, lower income countries are more likely to have civil war. In fact, one of the things I take away uh, from my work in this area is that one tends to get terrorism when the conditions for civil war are not right. So you can think of uh, 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 if the conditions for civil war were more uh, ripe, uh, terrorism would not be the result. It would be uh, it would be civil war instead. Uh, now I mentioned George Bush had a more nuanced view. He wrote in the New York Times on the anniversary of September 11th, uh, "Poverty does not transform poor people into terrorists and murderers." I consider that a victory for social science research. Uh, then he went on to say, yet poverty, corruption, and repression are a toxic combination in many societies, leading to weak governments that are unable to enforce order or patrol their borders and are vulnerable to terrorist networks and drug cartels. Uh, so I interpreted this in statistical terms as he thought there was an interaction effect uh, between poverty and uh, repression, civil liberties, and statistically there was none. Uh, it looked like they have independent effects. So the effect, to the extent there is an effect of poverty or of, of GDP, it's on providing conditions, I think, for more political freedom, uh, rather than uh, having some interaction effect. Uh, the first order effect seems to be, uh, or the direct effect seems to be, uh, uh, civil rights and political rights. Uh, so why? Why doesn't poverty? Why isn't poverty related to terrorism? Um, and uh, it's interesting why the presumption of so many people is that there is a connection. And if you look at the literature on economics of crime or the economics of, of suicide, uh, and believe it or not, there is a literature on economics of suicide, um, the main variable in those, in those models is that people with low market opportunities are the ones who become involved in crime and become involved or, 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 uh, or suicide. Um, and uh, you can imagine how this works in economics most important for decisions are, are someone's alternatives. You think of the best alternative as the opportunity cost. And if someone has very high opportunity costs for becoming a criminal, uh, they won't do it. So if you have a high market wage, many opportunities, then you won't uh, become a criminal. And you can think of the same uh, perhaps for terrorism. Uh, but for terrorism, it looks to me like the impact of opportunity cost is outweighed by other factors. Uh, most importantly, I would think, uh, that uh, because terrorism is a political act, um, to become involved politically it requires some understanding of the issues. Um, and becoming informed of the issues is less costly for those who are better educated. Uh, those who become extremists tend to be better educated. Um, so uh, even though the opportunity cost is higher for someone from a more advantaged background or higher educated to become involved in terrorism, that's outweighed uh, by the impact that um, uh, those who are uh, better educated or, or um, more advantaged seem to care more about the outcome. They've become uh, more passionate about the issue, which I think is somewhat related in a small way probably uh, to the fact that I showed you earlier that people who were illiterate were much more likely just to say no opinion. Uh, that's on the supply side. Uh, on the demand side, I think it points in the same direction. The organizations that are involved in terrorism, and I think they're very important, um, they want to succeed. They want to select participants who are going to carry out their acts, uh, and especially for international terrorism. So you want uh, uh, someone uh, who will uh, be able to pull off the act, and they're not necessarily so easy to do. Um, and uh, that leads the organizations to demand 
uh, higher skilled individuals as well. So in economics, we think of this as the Roy model of occupational, uh, uh, of occupational sorting. Um, and uh, it seems to me uh, to fit uh, the facts on terrorism. Uh, so let, let me conclude. Uh, I should make a caveat I probably should have made earlier. Uh, that a lack of correlation, which is what we found, is not proof of a lack of causality. We always tell the students in statistics that correlation and causality are not the same thing. That also works if there's no correlation. doesn't mean lack of causality. Uh, there could be other factors that we haven't controlled for adequately. Uh, this isn't an experiment, so uh, I, I, I do want to point out that caveat. At the same time, uh, I think there's very little support empirical support for the view that, uh, uh, that terrorism has uh, roots uh, in economic conditions. Um, this leads me to conclude that terrorism should be viewed as a violent political act, not as a response to economic conditions. Uh, we shouldn't think of terrorism as terrorists as property crime uh, or suicide bombers as people who have few opportunities. Uh, it seems to be the opposite. A better analogy, I think, is to voting. Uh, better educated, higher income people are much more likely to vote. They also have a higher opportunity cost. Uh, they're the ones who should be the least likely to vote if all that mattered was the opportunity cost. Uh, there may be some indirect links. I mentioned civil war before. Um, uh, political freedoms might be linked to economic conditions. Um, there still could be a concern for the poor. Uh, so I think there are many reasons to improve education and reduce poverty, uh, but terrorism is probably not, not one of them. Um, uh, Jay Leno had this nice line uh, on that, where he said, um, Saddam Hussein, according to the news reports, is paying uh, money for suicide attackers. What's next? He's going to offer a health insurance plan. Um, uh, clearly, it's not their own material interest which is just driving them. It's, if, if, that, if, if that is motivating them. I actually have quite severe doubts whether Saddam Hussein actually paid a dime to terrorists. To, to suicide. I mean, I've read it in a newspaper, uh, but I read it uh, coming from the same sources which told us that terrorism was at its lowest level uh, since 1969 last year. Um, so I'm not sure it is a fact, but let me also make the following point. If you look after the fall of Baghdad, when you know, one of the justifications for the war was this will stop Saddam Hussein from financing terrorist acts, terrorism in Israel didn't decline. So um, it's not clear to me at all that this is uh, an important factor behind uh, the, the uh, number of terrorist attacks that were occurring. Yes.
I can say a little bit about that. Um, the Palestinian population is actually quite well educated. And the uh, education of Palestinians expanded considerably in the 1980s. So if you look at the growth of the workforce, the uh, 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 college-educated uh, segment grew considerably in the 1980s, uh, which is probably a contributing factor to the rise in unemployment among, among college graduates. Uh, so uh, one, one thing sort of to bear in mind there, if one's going to use education as a strategy, one has to be uh, uh, concerned that it could actually have adverse impact on, on leading to higher unemployment. Now, I actually don't think unemployment has much impact on, on uh, terrorist incidents. If, if you look, I mentioned earlier I was doing some, I've done some modeling over time of the frequency uh, month by month of terrorist attacks and the level of unemployment, or like the changes in the unemployment rate. You don't see much of a connect, you don't, you don't, you don't see a statistical uh, connection there. Uh, so I suspect that it's just a coincidence. And in fact, um, many of uh, the uh, suicide bombers haven't completed their studies yet. So it's not as if uh, they've been frustrated looking for looking for work. It's um, I, I think that's probably just not a major not a major factor, is my guess. Um, and if you look, you know, I don't like to point to just one one, one incident. But if you look at those who were involved in September 11th, they clearly had many opportunities, uh, many many employment opportunities. So um, it seems to me that it's not it's not a general factor um, that's uh, leading the Palestinians to become involved in suicide bombing attacks. And also, if you look at, I, I think one had a much stronger case in the first intifada for that explanation for the outbreak of terrorism. In the second intifada, the economic environment was improving pretty rapidly, and unemployment was falling. Uh, yet, uh, it's been much more virulent. Yes. Yes. And uh, the um, the uh, target countries which have more political freedoms and civil freedoms, civil rights, are the ones that are more likely to be targeted. Yes. Yeah, the graphs that I showed you were simultaneously controlling for the civil civil liberties variable. I agree with that. Um, probably apart from terrorism, I would agree with it. Uh, but I do think, if if you look at you know the evidence that we have, that's the strongest correlate. Um, and you know, I've I've said this uh, said this before. I think that the first thing that one should do is try to encourage Saudi Arabia to be more open. Uh, and I also think, in some respects, I kind of admire the goals of the Bush administration in the Middle East. In other respects, I wonder why it is that our military is closing down newspapers. Uh, and you know, throwing out TV stations, even if they're preaching violence, um, 
if what seems to be important is having some nonviolent way of expressing opinion. Um, so I, I worry that that, that, that could backfire. Um, but I think the first order policy I would recommend is, by the way, we may be way beyond this in terms of where we are now, but the first order policy I would have recommended would have been uh, to say America's gift to the world is democracy, and we're going to preach democracy around the world uh, and do what we can to try to uh, have democracy succeed. Well, that may well be what some of the variables are reflecting. For example, higher income countries. Uh, they could be blamed because they're successful. Um, or um, uh, the occupation variable. Most, most directly, you know, if a country uses its power to occupy another country, uh, that might be what provokes uh, that kind of reaction. So, so that may well be uh, what some of the variables are picking up. In the middle. Yeah, at the back. Uh, I don't disagree with that, um, but uh, if you had to choose between uh, economic e economic uh, growth or um, uh, political freedoms and civil liberties, what the analysis is suggesting is that those civil liberties are by themselves are what matter. Uh, so when, once you connect the economic aid then with uh, a promise of uh, uh, more, more political rights and, and, and civil, civil liberties, um, that's the indirect connection. To the extent that there's any effect of economic conditions, it's that indirect connection. But I, I think um, um, if we just say this is all driven by poverty, then uh, that misses, um, you know, that, that really misstates the, what's going on. Last question, I'm afraid. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, I'm certainly concerned about the quality of the <coughs> cross-country data, and I think 
it's unfortunate there are not better data. At one point, I thought the UN ought to provide such data, but there's no way the UN will agree on a definition of terrorism, which uh, would, would, would uh, I think, yield useful data. Um, also, the concerns you raised lead me to put more weight on the microeconomic, microeconometric micro evidence, uh, what I was showing you before when we looked across the individuals, which is in part my answer to uh, the question before. I, I have my reservations about <laughs> the uh, results from the cross-country analysis. Uh, having said that, I'm somewhat reassured that this other data set, the iterate data set, which is uh, collected from press reports, uh, has such a strong correlation. So that gives me some reason to be uh, somewhat hopeful that the data are picking up uh, an objective measure of the, of, of the variables I care about. I think ideally, by the way, this is a point that Leighton and I made also. And, and this, actually, the Inspector General's suggestions are recommended they'll be moving in this direction. The incident review panel, we learned, actually takes a vote on each incident. It would be very useful to know what the outcome of those votes were. So if you have multiple codings, then you can um, uh, uh, see which events you can be more confident in or less confident in, uh, and that might be one way of getting better estimates. Thank right. you. Thank you. for a few minutes outside. There's some refreshments for everyone. Thank you for coming, and thank you particularly to Professor Kruger.